I think I just try my best to like be real and like engage with people in a real way and like have conversations around beauty that are more than just like what people look like. Hi, my name is Baba and I'm excited to welcome you to the Bye Baba podcast Out of Office, featuring unconventional career paths with influential stories. This podcast aims to rewrite the script in which careers are discussed and how success is defined. Hosted by our very own senior creative manager, Jennifer Pazioni. With her international background in editorial and an unconventional career path herself, she asks the most thoughtful and interesting questions. Join us as we sit down to hear firsthand the journeys, lessons learned, and advice from creative forces who manifested their own way. Today I am out of office with Mian Chan, associate producer, beauty writer, and host of the Refinery29 YouTube series, Beauty With Me. Mian covers everything from fashion to lifestyle to beauty, and has written for a number of publications, including Refinery29, Teen Vogue, W Magazine, and The Cut. Her years in the beauty industry have given her a unique lens to which she brings to her writing and series. Hi, Mian. Hi, Jen. Thank you for joining us on Out of Office. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk. So I want to um, kind of jump right into the beginning. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a vet for the longest time. Then fourth grade hit, and we started learning about like environmentalism. And I was convinced that I wanted to be an environmentalist for a few years until someone told me that anyone can be an environmentalist. It's not an actual job. And so for a while, I wanted to do that. Then I kind of in middle school, I feel like I stopped caring about my career and started only caring about like boys and trying to be cool. And so I didn't really have any prospects for my career at that time. And then high school came around and I started doing a lot more like um, like volunteering at animal shelters and like doing things like along the lines of what I guess I liked in elementary school, which is kind of weird considering that I did go end up going into beauty and magazines. But I kind of do a lot of coverage about sustainability in the beauty space. So I feel like it's kind of a full circle moment. Like I don't I definitely don't have the math and science knowledge to be a vet. So I learned that pretty early on. I abandoned that dream. But it sounds like you had a very different idea growing up, like a very different path than actually where you are now. When did that kind of pivot? I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do until I was a sophomore in college, actually. So I was initially an international politics major at NYU where I went to school. Uh, That was not for me. I thought that I wanted to do that because I kind of wanted to go into the nonprofit sector. just was taking the classes that if I wanted to declare for that major, I could have. Kind of coinciding with that, toward the tail end of high school, I was starting to discover YouTube. And I consumed a lot of it. Like, at that time, I think I was watching a lot of, like, Miss Glamorazzi, who's now Ingrid Nilsson, Fleur DeFort, a lot of the UK bloggers, like some of those OG Michelle Fawn, um, learned so much from them. And simultaneously was also doing this, like, volunteering stuff and going to school, not really sure what I wanted to do. And then it just so happened that I... Got an internship in an art magazine. Um, honestly, it was my freshman year, and I just took that internship because I felt so much pressure to have an internship because everyone that goes to school 
in New York, it's an internship, like their first semester of fre- their freshman year of college. And I felt a lot of pressure. So I got that job. And then after that was over, I kind of was perusing the Internet and I happened upon a listing for an internship in beauty for W Magazine. And I hadn't going and working in magazines and doing beauty was not on my radar at all. But I saw it and I was like, this sounds really fun, interesting. So I applied. I didn't think I was going to get it. I think this is a time when beauty was changing a little bit and the magazine industry was changing a little bit in the sense that I feel like old world magazines, I think you had to be pretty wealthy to get into that industry, like to try the clothing and having have a knowledge of the makeup and the beauty and like that sort of thing. You had to have the means to try those things. And I think through YouTube, I had an encyclopedic knowledge of beauty, but I didn't have the money to buy it and I didn't really need it need it to showcase that knowledge so we were in the interview and I was telling her about like retinols and how it's a form of vitamin a and it speeds up cellular turnover and like I was on retinol when I I was in high school and talking about all these new launches that were coming out that I didn't own but I knew that they were out because I was consuming so much like beauty news and so that's why I think I ended up getting the job at least I, I think that's why I got the job and that kind of started it for me it was like getting that internship that I just applied for because I saw it and was interested. So YouTube was basically your beauty school in the beginning. I learned a lot about beauty for magazines too, but in terms of how to actually apply makeup and that sort of thing, that was all through YouTube. I think having knowledge of beauty and makeup and skincare just makes you so much of a more empowered consumer. And that's when I started to be like, I know what's going to work for me. I know what's going to last on me. I know what skincare ingredients are going to agree with my skin. And I think that that kind of made me love beauty and also made me want to share and write and create content in that space. It sounds like basically from when you were a child, even what you thought you would be when you grew up, you kind of were already following a bit of an unconventional career path. But do you feel in any moment of your life through family, through parents, teachers, guidance counselors, you were taught or told to follow kind of a more conventional path? Uh, I think it's a yes a yes and no. Um, I am Chinese-American. My mom is from Singapore. And my dad's actually Chinese from Madagascar. And they definitely would have been super thrilled if I was a doctor or a lawyer. I think they definitely, like my mother would have um, been very happy if I had gone into those fields. But I think they learned pretty early on that I a would never be a doctor because I was so bad at math. I think for a while they thought that I might be a lawyer because I was such a chatterbox and super argumentative and that sort of thing. I still am. Um, but I so my parents are both math majors and they both like went to graduate school and like did math and. I think when they realized that that was just not who I am, but my sister really is. Like, she's so good at math. She's so good at science. It really clicks for her. They were just kind of like, all right, she's going to be the engineer. And they kind of just let me, they kind of just let me, and I've always been like headstrong and tenacious. And so I think that they kind of just let me do what I want. And they just kind of be- just believe in the back of their head that they would, that I would figure something out. But I will say that that underlying pressure did contribute to me wanting to like get the internships really, really early in in college, freelance a lot while I was in college. I think that I really wanted to prove that I could make a career for myself in like liberal arts. Um, because to them, like I don't think they could like me, like they couldn't really 
imagine a world that you can have a job like at a magazine like that was just so unfathomable to me and to them probably at the time so yeah there was definitely pressure I think that they would have I think it probably would have made them a lot more comfortable and less worried if I had gone through a more traditional career path but I think that so I ended up getting my full-time job at refinery as an editorial assistant like while I was still in college and I think that because of that they really were like just relieved weight off their shoulders and they were just like all right like you're doing this and then that was it so I definitely I think there was a little bit of underlying pressure but there wasn't nothing compared to like what other people go through and it sounds like your pressure was translated into a bit of like motivation yeah I think I really want to prove that I could I could do this like I could write about lipstick and silicone for a living and actually support myself doing it And segueing from that, you are super multifaceted in your position at Refinery29. You are a beauty writer, an associate producer. On top of that, you're a host of the YouTube series Beauty With Me. How did you become such a forefront figure of Refinery29? And was this your goal when entering? Yeah, it, it wasn't my goal when entering. I was an editorial assistant when I first started at Refinery. I was doing a lot of writing. And I was writing, strictly writing for, strictly writing and like producing some photo shoots, like for the first two years of the job, I think. And then as, you know, at this time, media was switching a lot. They were pivoting to video, as they say, because um, a lot of different publications were like, we need to start investing in video. And, you know, our video department was in its very nascent stages at the time. And we were creating beauty content, but I think it wasn't really hitting And they wanted, you know, they were like, what better place to like tap talent for a beauty show than like our actual beauty team where they're entrenched in the industry. They're going to events. They know what's new. At the time, before I started the show, I was liaising a lot between the video department because I was the only person on my team that had an interest in YouTube or beauty video at all. And I think that that's one thing that is kind of good advice for people who are like new to the industry or any industry that if you're the one person in your team that has an interest or a beat in something that the other people don't, it can give you an opportunity to grow in that space, right? So because I had an interest in YouTube, I had an understanding of what did well and what didn't do well because I actually watched and consumed it. They were like, okay, great. Like you can be the person that's like, overseeing the pitches for Snapchat Discover and like because of that I was pitching a lot as well because I was obviously I knew so much about the industry and they were coming to me for ideas we had this like back and forth collaborative kind of relationship between those two teams and then they were like you should have a show on our YouTube channel because we they wanted to like create a a beauty focused show for YouTube and that's when it started really and it started off very slow was just twice a month um And from there, it's kind of grown. I will say I didn't have a lot of input in the show in the beginning. Um, It was very much like I was the host of the show. I obviously had input in terms of what I was comfortable doing and that sort of thing, but I wasn't producing the show like I am now. Um, I was kind of softly writing the scripts for it at the time, but now I do much more. Like I produce the whole thing and I write the scripts for it. Um, So I've been able to learn over the past, like, what, two and a half, years that we've been doing the show so I've been able to like get a whole new skill set which is what's really cool about working at refinery is that you are able to work kind of cross department in that way but yeah I didn't expect it I didn't think it was going to happen but I kind of rolled with it when it did do you feel once you accepted that and and your videos began taking off 
Did you feel expectations of you changed when you became such a forefront figure? How did you navigate that? I don't think that the way people treated me at work really changed. I think that I did have to deal with like the first, you know, putting out something and people not liking it and DMing me that they didn't like it. Or How did you deal with that? I mean, the first time I got a negative comment was actually on a story that I wrote. Like they wrote the negative comment and at the end they said, hashtag no me and Chan. And I literally cried. Wow. I called my friend Taylor Bryant. So I was like, they hate it. And then I was like, damn, I'm not the kind of person that can deal with hate. There's a sense of like vulnerability when you put something out there that's yours. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was proud of it. Yeah. And I wanted people to like it. And everyone was like, you know what? This is a rite of passage for you. Like you had you got your first hate comment, like go you. And I was like, "Mm, okay. And over the years, like I've obviously gotten other things. I've now it kind of rolls off my back more than it did before because I know that they just blow over. I think in the beginning, you think that it's going to blow up and become something that it isn't. Um, I think something that's a little tough is like being beholden to numbers and stuff like that, like that. Obviously, being beholden to numbers at pretty much any job when you're writing and stuff like that. But when when the numbers are like attached to your face like that can be a little bit hard. It can be hard not to get to take it very personally and be really upset when a video that I was really passionate about, like didn't get the numbers that I thought it was going to. And I didn't, you know, maybe it was a news format of a of a video that I wanted to really get a proof of concept for and it just didn't fly. Um, and that's, I think, hard. I think that has been hard for me just because I'm like, why didn't they like it? I think that's something that's difficult to navigate for a lot of creators. I think a lot of times there's the business side of it. And then there's the side that you're writing a passion piece or producing a passion piece. And sometimes when those don't align on the same road, it's definitely a struggle. Like I just did a video like my first like kind of bigger feature on dumpster diving. Basically, in short, the video is about this community on YouTube of people who dumpster dive behind beauty stores like Ulta, Sally Beauty, Cosmoprof. And they take like sometimes completely untouched product that the stores are throwing away. And the video was about, you know, about the phenomenon, this weird trend of people going and diving behind dumpsters, but also with the underlying message of like, why are all these stores throwing this away? It's so wasteful. Why is the beauty industry so wasteful? I wanted that video to go viral. I think I had some really lofty, like, ambitions for that video. The comments were so overwhelmingly positive. Like, they loved it. They wanted us to do more of that kind of more, like, featurey video. But it didn't hit the way that I wanted to. And I was really upset by that because we had been working on it for, like, a year. And I told everyone about it. And it started to make me doubt that it was good. And I still go back and forth between, like, damn, there's so much more. There, There will always be more that you can do. Um, but that was very, it still upsets me to think about the fact that it didn't hit the way that I had wanted it to. I personally loved that video. I think, I think something that was so unique about that video was that you drew people in by Mianna's dumpster diving for makeup, but you actually dove into something so much deeper and It really just spoke so much to sustainability and the waste problem that we have, not just from consumers, but from brands, from employees. Um, I really thought it was incredible. Why do you think it didn't have the results that you planned? 
I don't know. It could be that like there were a lot of publications that had covered dumpster diving in the past. Um, when it first kind of made the rounds online and people were finding out about it, it was like two years ago. So we did do it a little late, but we had, we did. So I wanted to do this. I've been wanting to do this video for a really long time. We finally made it happen like in 2018. And my whole like thought process here was that like people had covered it as this like viral trend, but no one was asking why it was happening. And that's why I wanted to do the video. I don't know why I didn't, it didn't like, sometimes it's so hard to know like what, what's going to hit it big you know it is it the algorithm is it like how much engagement people are like commenting within the first hour like there's so many different things I think the response was really good and it did do fairly well it just didn't I mean maybe it was crazy of me to be like it needs to get a million views in a week um but I wanted it to but yeah I don't know I don't I can't really answer that question I don't think I it's hard to say it's hard to say when videos just don't they don't do well or they do crazy well like we the two weeks later we did a video with like cardi b's nail um artist and that video like hit a million in a week but that i think was because of the, the cardi b tie in there i wonder if it's when viewers kind of steer more towards culture pieces yeah, rather yeah, than something think... that's a bit harder or heavy for them to digest because it is yeah. a moral issue that the sustainability and and the waste problem that we're having yeah and i do think I mean, the waste issue thing is is a whole nother can of worms. And I think that there is a tendency for people not to want to hear it because it can be very overwhelming and there really are no clear answers. And it, it can feel like, you know, it can make you feel really guilty, you know, consuming that sort of stuff. I think it's important, but I can understand people just wanting. It's really the first video we've ever done that did have that kind of tone. And it's possible we hadn't trained our audience to expect that from me. And that could have contributed to why it didn't hit as hard. I mean, obviously, Refinery29 has a certain type of audience. We definitely do features like that. But I think the beauty with me audience isn't necessarily there for that. I think we would definitely do more. Um, it did well enough for that. And, like, I think that there is a thirst for more, like, featurey, more reported stories, like, on the channel and on YouTube in general. So I think it was a good, like, first video we did. And I hope we can kind of jump off of it and do more. Your beat has definitely changed a bit over the course of your YouTube show. What drove you to shift the conversations more towards sustainability and culture? I mean, I think it doing a disservice to people as in journalism school to say that your beat will stay the same for like your whole life. And, you know, your palates change, your tastes change over the years. My interests have changed. Um, I've always been interested in sustainability and like environmental impact. I didn't think I'd ever write about it, but... The industry that I'm in, like the beauty and fashion industry, is such a wasteful industry. And it makes me feel like such a hypocrite a lot that on the one hand, I'm posting about like all the newest stuff from Glossier. And then like in the same breath, I'm like, I need to go compost my food scraps. Um, I was talking to my friend. This is like a tangent off of your question. But I was talking to my friend Lauren Singer, who owns a zero waste store called Package Free in Williamsburg. And I was asking her how about how to how to love things but still care about the environment. And she was like, at the end of the day, like you should you should be able to engage in the things that you love. The industry should just be adapting so that you can do that in a way that's having the least amount of impact on the earth. That's much easier said than done. Totally. But I do love that because I think 
consumers feel guilty a lot of the times yeah. when, of course, there's the level of being conscious about what you're purchasing and, and how you're throwing things away. But there's so much more that brands can be doing. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of waste in the, in the, in the manufacturing and production processes. I think there's a lot that individuals can do. And I think it's amazing that there are people who are zero waste. And I try to be as low impact as possible. I mean, obviously, that doesn't always fly. Like I nor see like right now, I'm literally drinking out of a disposable paper cup. I normally bring a cup with me and I didn't today. Um, that used to really, really, really bother me. Like, feeling like like there's so much more I, I used to like literally just stay in bed thinking about it for like until like two in the morning being like I'm not doing enough like how can I be preaching all this and I'm not I how can I be not living my life the way that I think that like people should be living it I definitely think that there's more to learn in beauty always but I know so much about it now. I think it's natural to want to, like, explore other areas. Like, and obviously they're tangential, right? Like I kind of got into sustainability in terms of my coverage through beauty. And what I like about beauty, like covering beauty, is that there are so many different ways you can go in terms of coverage of it. You can go the, like, art, like, makeup artist route. You can go, like, the you know, very serviceable, like, what should you buy route, which is always fun. And then you can also go, like, the science-y, like, ingredients-focused route, like, new innovations in skincare, different things that are, like, coming to market. And then you can also go, like, a very cultural. I mean, beauty touches everyone. We are consuming things from the in beauty industry constantly. And the fact that the beauty industry is sparking conversations around diversity and inclusion and and conscious consumption, I think it shows you that, like, yes, like you can think that beauty is so materialistic and shallow, but there's a lot of different layers to it. Um, so, yeah, I think that my beat will definitely change over the years. I think I'll always love beauty. I think I'll always, I'll always cover beauty. Um, but I think, honestly, a beat is just whatever you are interested in at the time. And as you get older, that those tastes change. I think your appetite changes. And I think, especially in creative roles, you have to keep feeding that appetite. And kind of similarly in the way of like cravings, sometimes you're craving something new and, and that's what you need to feel satisfied. So I think that's amazing. Yeah, that's so true. You don't want to like get into this place where you're just kind of stagnant. Yeah, exactly. I feel like with you, maybe it also comes from when you have a greater platform, there comes a greater sense of responsibility. I would feel a little bit like I'm doing a disservice to my audience if I'm not talking about more. Um, and that I think is just because I'm interested in I'm interested in more than than just telling people what they should buy. And that's because I also think that there's so much more to beauty than just what you should buy. Consumers are really educated now, and I think that they that there is a thirst that people want more from from publications and influencers and YouTubers and creators more than just like, oh, this concealer is really dope. Like they want more than that. They want like cultural significance. They want like cool stories. They want interest. They want to learn. What is your goal with Beauty With Me? I think my goal with Beauty With Me is to tell interesting stories and hopefully the viewer will walk away with something learned. You know, whether it's a very simple video we're doing on like I don't know, a CBD facial and teaching people a little bit about CBD in the process to something like dumpster diving or like I do a series um, where I kind of like recreate the beauty routines of icons. 
Um, and we did I did one on Marilyn Monroe like last year. And I did and I did one recently on Anna Mae Wong, who was the first Chinese American Hollywood star. And it was really interest. It's just really interesting to. I think beauty history and fashion industry history is very important, and learning about and I think that that was a really fun episode for me to create because you it is teaching the audience about all these things about these stars that you wouldn't have known and how how beauty impacted people in those decades so like you know we're doing a lot of period pieces now on vintage makeup and I think the thing that I'm grappling with a lot with these stories is like okay 1950s makeup tutorial like I think it's doing a disservice to people if all we do is put the makeup on and we don't discuss at all that that makeup was kind of used as a vehicle to reinforce gender roles at that time and for a very long time. I mean, um, and I think that's what I want to do with the show is like show that beauty can be fun and it's interesting and it's beautiful, but also show that there's like an extra Always a little extra layer, but it's also because I'm just interested in that. I love that because I think your viewers they're already coming to your videos to learn something, and it could be as simple as you know, learning how to apply eyeshadow or you know, the winged eyeliner, but they would walk away with something even greater than that. I hope so. It's like I, a surprise yeah. and delight. That's what I hope. That's what I hope they're getting getting from it. I I will say not every single episode has that extra layer, but the I, we try for the bigger ones for sure. How do you think beauty brands can be more inclusive culture-wise and more progressive sustainability-wise? I think that really nowadays it's really just about listening to your consumer and showing showing consumers that you're representing them, right? So making sure you have the shades available to them making sure that you're showing a diverse set of like sizes, ethnicities, skin tones, like the whole like genders in your advertising. It's really just about showing I think that a lot of brands are doing that now. I think that they're we're, you know, they're it's getting pushed in the right direction. I think there's a long way to go in terms of that. I mean, there's definitely have been brands that I won't mention over the past, you know, year or so that have put out like 40 shades of foundation, but like the shades were like bad, like they were like no mid-tone shades or something like that, where they were, you know, you're like, you're trying, but like you're still missing the mark here. I think that the success of, you know, brands like Everlane and like the growing clean beauty movement are really good examples of the consumer having a lot of power because consumers are like flocking to brands like that. They want like radical transparency. I mean, there was a report by Nielsen in 20. 15 that said that 60% of millennial consumers or global consumers would pay more for a sustainable brand. I think that millennials, Gen Z, Gen Z, as consumers, we're more educated and we want our dollar to go towards something good. And we want to be able to like stand behind the brands that we like and love and are putting money toward. And brands just need to listen to that. You know, we live in an age where so it's so easy to tap into your consumer now. You know, you can literally just put a story up and ask them, like, ask them a question. You'll get, like, 100 responses. I think it's easy to be keeping them in mind when you're formulating or creating new things. Uh, in terms of sustainability, I think that, that brands also need to be looking at their manu- changing their manufacturing processes. I mean, the... I get that it's difficult when things are, you know, your factory, you know, you lose money if you stop the 
production process. But looking at your impact there, not even just like thinking with the end of life of your product, like what is a consumer going to do when I'm done with when they're done with your, with my nail polish? But thinking about like what happens to the product through the production process, like what happens to the misprinted bottles? Like, are you recycling them or are you just throwing them away? Like recycling isn't 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 the best answer because plastics in particular, only nine percent of plastics are actually recycled. So thinking about a different way to to like consume or a different way to manufacture. I think a brand that's doing something cool that's in a very nascent stages, we'll see like how it does. But TerraCycle, which is like a, it's kind of like a recycling organization. Like they basically recycle things that are very hard to recycle. So like pumps, um, even like diapers have like some plastic in it and they recycle those. Uh, they just launched a brand called Loop, like a sub subsidiary brand. Um, and they partnered with a bunch of, um, brands like Tropicana, Haagen-Dazs, like Tide to make refillable versions of their products. It's kind of like the 2019 version of like the Milkman. Wow. You would buy like a reusable aluminum Tide container and then you would send it back when you need it to be refilled and buy it. I think that there are definitely kinks in the system that need to be worked out. And right now it's not it's comparable in price, but still, I think, a little bit more expensive because you do have to put down a deposit, I believe, for the actual reusable thing that you're using. But it's a cool concept, and I think it makes it very accessible when they launch in more cities. It'll make it very accessible because it's brands that people already love and use now. So Tropicana or they're not asking anyone to change the brand they're using. They're just asking you to change the method in which you're getting them. Which is such a good entry yeah. way into this because people are creatures of habit. I think it starts from the ground up. And I think a lot of these brands lately, they have good intentions. Some, I believe, are on the marketing wheel of, of using buzzwords Agreed. and trying to attract the millennial. Yeah, jumping on jumping on a bandwagon. I think we've seen, especially recently, just too many times where things have come out from brands that are just culturally not acceptable. And it really makes you wonder how many levels of approval something went through to be approved to come out. And then the whole consumer audience has the same reaction yeah, that seems so polarized from what the brand's reaction of yeah. it was. And to me, that speaks so much to not having enough diversity represented in your team. So I yeah, think 100%. it starts even there. Over the course of your career as a beauty writer, have you witnessed personally a shift in the definition of beauty and also kind of the preconceived beauty standards? I think, yes. I think the beauty industry has changed a lot. I think that we are in a, you know, we are accepting a lot we're in a place, so, you know, there's, there was the 90s and the early 2000s where all that looked the same, all exactly the same, super photoshopped, like really skinny, like blonde white models. Um, we're at a place where I think that we are celebrating uh, people that look different. But I do think that we've traded those beauty standards for other beauty standards. I think we live in this world of like this like glossy world where like the there's still the standard that you have to have amazing clear skin. 
like super dewy, beautiful skin. Like if you're, you know, I think it's way better, but I think they're definitely still beauty standards, even if they're not the, you know, white, blonde, blue eyed standards that we were, we witnessed in the 90s. I think there's still, I think, I think it would be wrong to say that, oh, the beauty industry is like so great now because it's not. I think that there are great things about it, but I think there's still like an overwhelming pressure to, to be beautiful, to be, to have beautiful skin, to like, you know, have big eyes. I think that what's great is that we're in a place where we're celebrating models and people that don't look like that. Um, How do you personally navigate the beauty industry? I don't know. I wish I could say that like I was so confident that I don't compare myself to the way that the girls that I see on Instagram. I definitely do. They're the new kind of beauty standard, you know? It's like everyone has to look like woke up like this flawless. Like everyone has to like look like they were kissed by a ray of sunshine like every time they're like driving in an Uber or something. I think I just try my best to like be real and like engage with people in a real way and like have conversations around beauty that are more than just like what people look like. Um, I think that's extremely important because like we were talking about this entire time, like there's so much more to beauty than just like what you're putting on your face. Even though I love to talk about what I put on my face. Um, What's the best piece of career advice you've ever received? Always take the interview. My old editor said I love that. that always take the coffee chat or the interview or the meeting even if you know just to see what's out there just to see what's around have conversations with people you don't have to take it things have a way of coming full circle too I always believe and I think sometimes the people you meet although it may not progress right then and there there's a tendency that you will see that person or meet that person again at some point in your life exactly Uh, Is that your best piece of um, career advice? I think mine is similar to yours, but it's slightly different. Mine is definitely knowing what you don't want is just as important as knowing what you do want. It's true. I feel like people, it means you're one step closer to knowing what you do. Exactly. Exactly. So as our closer, Mian, you're out of office. What do you do with your day? Wake up really late, probably with my cat on my lap. I'll usually like, I like to clean in the morning. I don't know. I just feel like it's like, it helps me like de-stress. Not that I'm like really stressed when I wake up, but it stresses me out to clean at any other time of the day, really. Like at night, I hate cleaning at night. So I'll like, sometimes I'll clean a little bit in the morning and then... I mean, it depends what I'm doing, but if I'm just, like, literally nothing to do, like, on a Saturday, we'll, my boyfriend and I will walk to the farmer's market, we'll drop off our compost, we'll, like, get, like, lunch around there, we'll walk back, we'll maybe, like, meet people, meet some friends at a brewery to, like, play games and drink or something. Perfect day. Yeah, that's, like, basically what we do every single Saturday. Thanks for joining my conversation with me, Anne. You can follow her on Instagram at mian.chan, along with her series, Beauty With Me, on the Refinery29 YouTube channel. Thanks again for tuning in to the Out of Office podcast. Hit subscribe to keep up with us, and of course, rate or share with a friend. Out of Office is not just a conversation with our guests. It's also a conversation with you. Send us your career questions to hotline at bybaba.com and we'll answer them in our upcoming episodes.
This podcast was produced by Tinka Media and music was brought to you by Blue Dot Sessions.